Austin Church, uh, one of the members of our church, was walking back to his truck parked on the Gay Street Bridge a little while ago when a homeless man asked him a question, asked him in kind of a brusque way, hey, do you got any money? And Austin uh, was in a hurry, he didn't actually have any money, and he said, no, I don't. And the man shot back, hey, your glasses cost more than my shoes. And uh, Austin, as he told me the story, acknowledged that that kind of rubbed him the wrong way. And uh, then the homeless man said, I'll clean them, buddy, for a buck. Austin spun around and replied, as if you know Austin, only Austin would. Um, Asking for money is one thing, he said, but being rude is quite another. The man was shocked, humbled, and then he said, you're right. I've acted like a jerk. And Austin decided to shelve his plan and listen to the man's story. His name was Leon. His cousin had gotten high on drugs, wrecked his car. He had been a mason making $14 an hour. He could no longer get work, lost his job. Within weeks, he couldn't afford to pay the rent in his apartment, ended up on the street. Leon told Austin, I remember driving down Broadway and seeing all the people in front of CARM and thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not one of them. And now I am. Now, why did Austin let go of his agenda for an hour in order to listen to a homeless man tell his story? I think one of the reasons is because Austin is a follower of Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit, Austin understands that he's been placed in this city to seek its peace. And that sometimes that means listening to a homeless man tell you their story. The Bible calls caring for the poor and vulnerable, seeking the peace of the city. It also calls it practicing justice. And practicing justice is one of the ways that God's people bring about God's shalom in our community. So tonight I want to talk about this fifth practice of peacemaking. We are looking at eight this fall. And let me just acknowledge off the bat that of the eight that we will look at, um, justice may be the one that just on the surface evokes the most reaction in some of your hearts. Uh, It it may be the the word that you've had some kind of experience with. As I've mentioned this to people along the way this fall, I've I've heard everything from, that is what I love about this church, I can't wait till you talk on that, to, why do you have to talk about that? Um, I I just have all these bad emotions when someone brings up the word justice because in the past that represented to me a church that had left its moorings. So... uh, I want to do a couple things tonight. I want to take uh, quite a bit of time to lay out what I hope to be a biblical theology of justice and seeking the peace of the city. And then I want to um, look at three ways we can seek justice in our city and close with a few reflections. Uh, The first part will take a little bit of work, okay? And if any of you uh, Bible beavers want to look up all these verses, uh, email me and I'll send you the manuscript. Um, Okay, justice is is one of those big biblical words. That's why we can't ignore it. Uh, It's everywhere in the Bible. The word translated justice in the Old Testament is mishpat. 
And in the noun form alone, it's used 422 times. So the biblical writers think and talk a lot about justice. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Uh, is it that this word mishpat, depending on the context, is used one of two different ways. The first way mishpat is used refers to judging fairly. Justice is judging fairly. Uh, God, in the scriptures, is a God of justice because he judges fairly. Psalm 99, verse 2, praises God for being just. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You've executed justice. Psalm 97, verse 2, declares of God, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So God is the the source of justice. God is the one who judges justly. And because God is just, he judges fairly. Psalm 9, verse 7. The Lord has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. And because God is just, his leaders are to lead and judge justly as well. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 1.17. He says to the leaders, You better not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In other words, you should judge fairly because you serve and know the God who is justice. So that's the first way that mishpat is used in, uh, in the Bible, to judge fairly. Now, the second way mishpat is used refers to restoring the world to the way God intended it to be. Uh, I'll put a couple quotes from uh, two different sources. Uh, The Anchor Bible Dictionary says that mishpat refers to the restoration of a situation or environment which promoted shalom in a community. And so now we're talking about doing justice. And when, when the Bible is using the word this way, it's talking about doing those kind of things that restore shalom to, to a people or a community. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, defines justice as the intention of God expressed from Genesis to Revelation to set the whole world right, a plan gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ, supremely in his resurrection, following his victory over the powers of evil and death on the cross, and now to be implemented in the world. So God creates the world to enjoy his shalom, his right order. Uh, In the garden, the first human beings enjoy shalom, right order, right relationship with God, with one another, with the planet, with themselves. That is the way God intended life to be. Sin, as we saw last week, shatters shalom. Uh, The rebellion of the first couple wrecked God's good order. Life on earth was no longer as God had created it to be. And so the rest of the Bible is God restoring order to his broken planet. He is restoring shalom. He is setting the worlds to right. And he has invited us to join him. And so when Brad Carter... Uh, works for Shalom in his medical clinic. He is practicing justice. 
Uh, and when Polly Tulloch uh, helps an elderly person uh, find equitable treatment for Alzheimer's, she is practicing justice in her neighborhood. Now, this is the kind of justice the prophet Amos refers to when he cries, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He's, he's saying, let shalom come. Let everything that's broken be restored. Let the world be healed. And that's the kind of justice Micah refers to in that classic summary of authentic religion. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So we do justice when we work for the restoration of shalom in our community. Now, I want to say one more thing about uh, justice, this second use of the word mishpat. Old Testament scholar Norman Snaith, and I think that's a horrible thing to do to any child, (laughs) is to name him Norman Snaith, um, (laughs) unless you're writing Harry Potter books. Um, Well, anyway, dear Dr. Norman wrote a book called The Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament. And one of the distinctive ideas is that the most striking characteristic of biblical justice is caring for the weak and vulnerable. So let's put all this together here. Is the second usage of justice, the verb form, is setting the world to rights, restoring shalom, restoring order, And many, many times when God talks about that, he talks about caring for the weakest, most vulnerable members of the community. Here's just a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Uh, Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Do justice and deliver from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed. Job 29.12, Job says, Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him and caused the widow's heart to sing joy, my justice was like a robe and a turban. So doing justice is restoring order to the community, restoring shalom to your neighborhood, especially by caring for the weak and needy. Now, one of the questions that uh, Christians rightfully ask at this point is, is, but isn't this kind of justice more of an Old Testament idea? Um, Isn't it true that the New Testament doesn't really talk about it very much? Uh, My New Testament professor, or my professors in seminary certainly gave that impression. I remember in three years, uh, only one lecture uh, addressing justice in in kind of an offhanded way in the book of Amos. Uh, We never talked about justice in terms of in the courses on the church or the gospels or the epistles. And so the impression was that this was something for the old dispensation that's not uh, part of God's plan for the church today. So what, what, what does the New Testament say about doing justice? Well, let's start with Jesus. Um, Jesus understands himself to be fulfilling the prophecies that the Hebrew prophets made about the Messiah. And one of the things that the prophets declared was that when the Messiah would come, he would bring justice. Uh, This is especially so in the writings of Isaiah. And Isaiah announces, uh, for example, in in chapter 16, verse 5, that when Messiah comes, a throne will be established in steadfast love 
and on it will sit one who judges and seeks justice. So Isaiah is looking into the future and he's saying the Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to reign. He's going to establish this kingdom and one of the marks of the kingdom will be mishpat. It will be restored shalom. Isaiah 32, 16. In the day of the Messiah, a child will be born to Israel and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Actually, this is Isaiah 9, 7. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to uphold it with justice. Now that's a, a wonderful uh, prophecy in Isaiah 9. We read at Christmas time. And he's saying there's going to be a child born. The child's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to establish justice on the earth. Now in Isaiah 61 the prophet goes so far as to describe an actual sermon that the Messiah will preach one day describing his mission. And it begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, fast forward about 700 years or so. Jesus is beginning his public ministry. At the moment uh, on the Sabbath, uh, when he's in synagogue and the guest rabbis are invited to teach on Torah, Jesus stands up, opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, and reads it. And he reads that exact same verse. Then he sits down and he says, Today, that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. uh, And I have come to bring about justice. Now, given the priority of justice in Jesus' inaugural sermon, uh, we're not surprised that he spends a great deal of time caring for the weakest members of the community that he visited and lived in. In a way, no other Jewish leader would have done. Jesus lived with the poor. He ate with them, drank with them, laughed and cried with them. Women were were very vulnerable members of his society, but... uh, Rabbis wouldn't speak to them. Uh, Jesus uh, made them a part of his community and taught them, let them wash his feet. His own mother, a poor teenager herself, prophesied that her son would, quote, fill the poor. Lepers were so despised in Jesus' day that they had to cry out unclean and walk to the other side of the street when they passed a holy man like a rabbi. Jesus instead reaches out to them, touches and heals them. When some of John's disciples come to find out if he really is the Messiah, Jesus replied, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He's saying, Look at my resume. The prophet said the Messiah would come to bring justice on the earth, to restore shalom, and that's exactly what I've been doing. And then, of course, there's the famous parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where Jesus teaches that on Judgment Day, His true believers will be recognized because they are the ones who've been feeding the hungry and giving drinks to the thirsty and visiting the sick and the prisoner. What about justice in the early church? Uh, The early Christians followed the example of their Lord. Uh, They paid a special attention to the needs in their own community. I'm going to come back to that later. But the biblical model is that 
you were first just in your own family, your own spiritual family, before even you were just in the world. And Luke would, would observe in Acts 4.34, there, there was not a needy person among them. And later on, Paul will, will say to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 35, Help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And then James, the Lord's brother, an apostle in the early church, uh, echoes the Hebrew prophets when he summarizes uh, a true faith. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, even the book of Revelation gets in on the act. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22 record a vision that John has of a new heaven and a new earth. God will dwell with humans in in a new city, the new Jerusalem, and he'll wipe away tears and there'll be no more death and mourning. In other words, and these, by the way, are words taken directly from Isaiah 65. When he describes the new Jerusalem, he uses the prophet's words in Isaiah 65, and he is saying, one day Shalom will be returned. We'll go back to Eden. One day we'll be restored. Now that's good news because, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, it means that our work building toward this future kingdom is not in vain. One day Christ will return. We know we can never make a din in this all by ourselves. We can maybe move the needle some. But one day He will return and complete our efforts and our work will not be in vain. N.T. Wright Uh, explains the implication of of this idea. Um, He says, if this is true, that that the goal of history is to restore shalom to the world, that this is what God is doing in the world, he says, then you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care or nurture, of comfort and support, for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces an embodied holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Well, if this is true... Uh, and that's as, as, as much as I can say to establish that it is, that one of the ways God's people are to seek the peace of the city is by doing justice, by working to restore order, to, uh, to restore shalom. If this is true, then uh, let me suggest three ways that we can do this in our city. And these come from Tim Keller's book, A Generous Justice. If you were going to read one book on this subject, that's where I'd start. The first way is relief. Uh, relief is direct aid to meet immediate physical, material, and economic needs. Uh, That's what the Good Samaritan uh, does. He provides relief for the beaten man. He provides him food and medicine and gets him on his way again. And so 
when you serve at CARM or give to CARM or VMC so they can feed and clothe the homeless, you're, you're working in relief. Um, I got an email this week from a, a doctor at Cedar Springs who said, wanted you to know we're starting a new medical clinic with an African-American pastor on Magnolia Avenue. Uh, if you have any medical people, let them know. We're looking for volunteers. That's relief. Um, Ron Wallard, one of our members, has spent about five years now, about 10 hours a week, caring for his friend Daniel and helping him first um, come off almost dying on a park bench and then getting him into housing and getting him into some care and washing his clothes and supporting him. That's relief. Now, there is a biblical teaching about relief work that, that I think is often overlooked, and I referred to it easier earlier, that our first commitment needs to be to the vulnerable in our own congregation. And we've already seen that in the book of Acts, that they distribute resources to those who have need. When the need becomes overwhelming, they appoint deacons to oversee a ministry to the weaker members of the church. And you know, We've been talking about this for years. I, I think establishing a health care fund has been a significant step in the right direction. I, I must say, though, that some of you don't feel free to apply for it for some reason. Please do. Uh, that fund is there because we've been trying to respond to God's word in this area. But I, I have to say, I think we should go farther. Uh, now, I, I'm the first to admit that I don't know what this all looks like. I don't know exactly what it would mean for our congregation to say there were no needs among us. Uh, I don't know how you figure out where to give it all and how to evaluate what's worthy and all that kind of stuff. I realize that even talking about this is fraught with peril. But I think the principle is true. That God wants to model in the new Israel, in the church, what he wants to have happen in the world. He wants to model justice in the church so that the world can see that. And one of the ways we do that is by caring for our own weak and vulnerable members. So I think we need to press into this a little bit more deeply. We've made a good start. Galatians 6.10, Let us do good to everyone, Paul says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the second way we can uh, work for justice in, in our city is through development. And I know that word means many different things. Uh, here's how Keller defines it. This means giving an individual, family, or entire community what they need to move beyond dependency or relief into a condition of economic self-sufficiency. Now, the man that has done the most to kind of teach the church about this, at least the side of the church that I've been part of, uh, is, is a man named John Perkins. He founded something called the Christian Community Development Association. And he says that development work uh, involves three R's. Uh, the first R is relocation. And Perkins taught that most attempts to help struggling neighborhoods come from the outside and whether it's the government or Christians, if, if you're always coming in from the outside, you don't know the needs of the neighborhood, and sometimes you can uh, cause more problems than you solve. And so relocation means moving into an at-risk neighborhood uh, in order to become a part of it. The second R is redistribution. Uh, Perkins' story is, is very powerful. Uh, I won't be able to tell it tonight. There Many books that you can read about it on. You can just look it up on the web. But he spent a lot of his life ministering in poor communities. And he saw that when well-intended people 
gave money to an at-risk neighborhood, the money didn't stay in the neighborhood. Uh, it went to the landlord or the banker or the grocery store owner who lived somewhere else. And this is something that my pastor friends who work in the city, African-American pastors, often uh, kind of dig me about. Is they say, you understand, when you go shop in Bearden, the dollar probably stays in Bearden. When you shop in my neighborhood, it winds up back in Bearden. And, and so the idea then is uh, some of the things that Bruce Charles and, and Spencer Hall and others have been working on is creating businesses in these communities, uh, creating leadership development and good schools and so that people can, can, can access and become a part of these businesses, supporting the churches uh, so that they can be vibrant and healthy so that, that all the, the money doesn't drain out uh, of the neighborhood. And then the third R is reconciliation. And Perkins grew up in Mississippi. Uh, he was nearly beaten to death by a sheriff during the Civil Rights Movement. Eventually, God gave him the grace to forgive, and he realized painfully that for uh, development to be successful, outsiders, who in his experience were often white, had to become a part of the solution, while insiders, who were often black, uh, had to be empowered to lead. And for that to happen, there had to be the hard work of racial reconciliation. Uh, Kathy and Adrian Gonzalez, who she shared a few weeks ago, are some people in our congregation who felt called to this. They moved into Mechanicsville in 96, raised their family there. Uh, they've served on community boards. Uh, they've taken elderly neighbors to see the doctor. They've helped them do paperwork to apply for grants from KUB when their winter heating bill soars to over $700 a month. Uh, for a number of years, Adrian rented an office in a renovated building in Mechanicsville, and they've had their own reconciliation work as well. When they first came, they were resented. Uh, and now, almost uh, 17 years later, reconciliation has, has occurred. Now, I do want to just mention this. If you know anything about the community, Christian community development model, it's very powerful. It's usually focused around one neighborhood. And All Souls is not a Christian community development church focusing on one neighborhood. We're a church that supports you in all the different ways that you do justice, and some of you are doing community development in your neighborhood. You see the difference? Sometimes people ask about that. Um, now, the last R is reform. Keller says, reform moves beyond the relief of immediate needs and dependency and seeks to change the conditions and social that aggravate or cause that dependency. And he tells a little story that's kind of, I think, makes the point. Let's suppose the Good Samaritan is going to, from Jerusalem to Jericho once a month. And every time he goes by this place in the road, there's another almost dead guy <laughs> that's been beaten to death. And so he puts him on his donkey and cleans him up. Well, after a while, he's going to get tired, right? And he's going to think, you know, I wonder if there's something we could do to keep this from happening. Uh, maybe we could uh, put soldiers here. Uh, maybe we could widen the road. Maybe we could pass laws uh, that would keep the guy from getting beaten up. So that's reform. Uh, when you kind of take one step above and, and, and you ask, what are the causes of, of this problem and how can we deal with it? Um, an example, again, from Mechanicsville would be years ago there was a, a project there called uh, College Homes. And again, well-intended, if you do the research, the people that put those there did so to help. Um, but by the early 90s, it was not helping. Matter of fact, it was a very dark place. 
Uh, and, and everyone that knew the neighborhood felt that uh, drug abuse and violent crime sort of emanated from the projects. And so some community leaders got together and, uh, to make a long story short, uh, came up with a plan, a reform plan, access some money from the government, and they uh, tore down the projects and pull, put multi-use housing there that's there today. And people that live in Mechanicsville, I mean, they've still got problems, but I think all of us that have been around a while would say it's a whole lot better than it was uh, because of reform. Now, I wanted to end. Um, I've been plugging away trying to figure out what justice ministry means since 96. And uh, I think our church has been working on this for, you know, the eight years we've been here. And I just wanted to end with a couple of lessons that I think, these are more personal, but I think we've learned them in community as well. The first lesson is that the only people who last in justice work are those who've responded to a genuine call from the Holy Spirit. See, here's kind of the risky thing with this, is that people in at-risk neighborhoods are tired of sort of being the project that middle-aged white guys with guilt issues come in and work out their anxiety on. And when I first started volunteering, uh, there was just a lot of, like, stiff arm, and I later figured out why they thought I'd be gone. And now that I, I keep coming back and won't go away, they, they, uh, the, the stiff arm is not so much there. So before you, you rush off to volunteer somewhere, make sure you're doing this because the Lord's calling you to do it. Uh, don't do it because you feel sorry for them. Don't do it because, by gosh, you've got so much and they have so little. What a schmuck you are. Go give some away. That, that'll last about a month. You need, to, you need to do whatever justice you do out of this intimate, abiding relationship with Christ. He'll show you what you're supposed to do. Uh, so that's the first step. The second, and I love the way Brad talked, talked about this, justice work is very difficult and can leave you feeling bitter and used. You know, a lot of times we, uh, I think, Speakers by training are taught to do this, is we romanticize doing justice work. And so we tell stories where we say things like, uh, it's, it's, I get so much more out of it than they do, and I see Christ in them, and Christ, it's just, it's just been the highlight of my life, and yada, yada, yada. Usually that's when you've been on a mission trip for a week. If you do this week after week, year after year, it's not quite as exciting. Uh, And this thought came up earlier this week. I think many of us are stuck in any kind of movement towards justice because we've been hurt. We've been taken advantage of. I mean, there's a guy who comes by here about twice a year. He says he's my best friend. He says he knows me. Changes his name every time. He changes the story a little bit. Usually, he's, I forget what he's dying of this year, but he's always dying of something. And he immediately needs money to, um, to get to some VA clinic and... I don't know how he does it, but he picks new people every time, and he walks away with lots of money. And usually I get an email, do you know? And I think, yeah, yeah. Well, when that happens to you, uh, sooner or later you're just going to get bitter and cynical. 
And maybe it's already happened to you. Uh, maybe you're just, just mad about it. So it may be that one of the things you've got to do is just sort of heal up. Uh, maybe you've been kind of crushed by all this, and before you can do anything, God needs to... Maybe you need to forgive poor people for, for taking advantage of your grace. Third, justice work seems very susceptible to me to legalistic thinking. Now, I don't know what it is about human beings. Maybe it's just Christians. I don't know. But we seem to have this nasty habit of ranking each other, of comparing ourselves to each other. And it's very easy to do this with justice work. Nobody ever quite comes out and says it, but, but you can develop this legalistic ranking system and it become part of the culture of a justice-seeking church. And the system goes like this. Um, people who live in at-risk neighborhoods are more devoted than people who live in suburban neighborhoods. Or people who live in really violent at-risk neighborhoods are more spiritual than those that live in moderately violent at-risk neighborhoods. Uh, people who live off little are more godly than people who have money. Uh, people who work in nonprofits are more godly than people who work in a bank. You know, we could just run on and on and on. So beware the pride and legalism that comes from sacrificing more than the next guy. Okay? Just two more. Everyone is fourth. Everyone's called to do justice, but nobody's going to do it the same way. Now, I hope I've made a case tonight that doing justice is part of the Christian life. It's part of the way we respond to God's grace in us. It's part of the way we live in the city. But... Let's not put it into a box. That's why we've resisted kind of having a justice program at All Souls, where, oh, you want to do justice? Go to that meeting. Because we'll all do it differently. We'll all respond differently in creative ways. Lastly, Justice work must not be a reaction against a perceived overemphasis on evangelism by churches we were a part of in the past. Now, that's kind of a cumbersome sentence. I probably ought to clean it up a little bit, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, I think the church is always in a reaction to something. If you study church history at all, you know, Martin Luther said we're like a drunk on a horse. You know, you fall off to the right, you fall off to the left. And I see that in the church. I see it in my own journey. I'm so sick of this. I'm so mad. Well, I'm going, oh, this feels so good. We do this. Well, and then you look back over 500 years and see the church always going back and forth. I think uh, we are a church with a lot of people that just got worn out with a gospel that felt too small. I mean, I did. And it felt to me that the gospel just had shrunk to uh, meeting my self-esteem needs. Uh, And... And so I got really, I've been real excited about a bigger gospel, a gospel that touched all of life, a holistic gospel, whatever you want to call it. But it's very easy when you go that way to forget about the cross, about calling people to repentance. So if justice is restoring shalom, then what could be more just than restoring someone to the God who's the source of shalom? I mean, the Jesus that talks all the time about being the Messiah and models coming for justice, he also says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. The church seems to often lose its way on this issue. 
150 years ago, the church split over this issue. And that's why a lot of us are so anxious about it, because the church broke in two in the late 19th century over two issues, Darwinism and injustice. And one, one group of Christians went all out towards feeding the poor, and one group of Christians said, uh, this is a quote, that's just shuffling uh, deck chairs on the Titanic. That was D.L. Moody. Uh, and you, you had this huge divide. And for 50 years, you had one side of the church that was all about preaching uh, for souls. One side of the church was all about feeding the hungry. And it wasn't until uh, like the 60s and the 70s till anybody started to try to integrate the two. So if you, you get kind of nervous when a church talks about these things, it's because we've just beat ourselves up for 150 years on this. Uh, Charles Marsh has written a book about the civil rights movement called Beloved Community. And his point is that it started as an integrated, gospel-driven movement that, that was balanced between this idea of, uh, of uniting in Christ and, and, and doing justice in the world. And he says that the civil rights movement petered out when it lost its, its gospel focus. It lost its uh, integration. So it just seems like this is a very easy thing to do. It is to go way to the one side or way to the other, and somehow they all go together. And, and I think the best illustration of this that I've heard recently is something that happened at Grace and Peace, our church plant. Uh, Troy and Melissa, as you know, um, adopted a, a couple little foster children, fell in love with these little guys, poured their hearts into them, and I think, I think they wanted to adopt them and were preparing their hearts that way. Well, then a strange thing happened. Uh, the foster mother, or the, not the foster mother, the mother of the natural mother of the children, who the court had taken the kids away from, uh, started to show up at Grace and Peace and started to get involved in their little community. And uh, Troy and Jason and others began to gently love her, care for her children, and share the gospel with her. And then the mother uh, became a follower of Jesus Christ and was baptized into that community of Grace and Peace. And then the court gave the two boys back to her. And now on every Sunday morning, they're all together in church. That's justice. Let's pray.